0: verses uh, 14 through 16, the epistle of Jude. We're moving forward now from where we've been over the last several weeks concerning uh, the woe unto them as we have looked at. These who um, Jude describes, of course, referencing again the men of verse 4 who are ungodly men, um, who are those who would turn the grace of God into lasciviousness, denying the Lord uh, Jesus Christ and uh, the Lord God. And then he goes through the remainder of this chap or this epistle, in giving us illustrations and historical examples of these ungodly men that we might have a better understanding of the significance of what he's teaching in verse three, concerning the necessity for of contending for the faith, and earnestly contending for the faith. So let's read verse fourteen. And Enoch, also the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So tonight we're going to begin the, an examination of the fifth. We concluded the fourth last week of the of this epistle, the fifth of the seven divisions within this epistle, which include, I'll remind you again, the first division, which is Jude's greeting in verses 1 and 2, the second, which is Jude's purpose in verses 3 and 4, at the purpose as to why he's written the epistle, The third is Jude's warnings, which are found in verses 5 through 7. The fourth is Jude's woe, which we concluded last week, verses 8 through 13. The fifth is Jude's reminder, which we are looking at this evening, verses 14 through 16. And the sixth is Jude's exhortation, verses 17 through 23. And then the last and seventh division is Jude's doxology, which includes verses 24 and 25 to conclude the epistle. This fifth division is a reminder of the Lord's judgment upon those men which Jude had mentioned in verse 4 as I previously stated. These are the men who perverted God's grace by turning grace into a provision for the freedom to sin rather than acknowledging that grace is God's provision for delivering us from sin. Jude begins by referring to that which Enoch prophesied concerning such wicked men. Look at verse 14 again, the first portion of the verse. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying. Now, the first statement in verse 14 is an interesting statement, to say the least. While Jude quotes a prophecy from Enoch, there is no other passage, including the Old Testament, in which this prophecy is provided. So Jude is not quoting an Old Testament verse here when he makes this statement. Most of the time in the epistles, you'll know, such as Paul, he'll say, as it is written or as the Scripture saith." Notice Jude does not say that here. He just simply quotes, and Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these saying. So there's speculation as to whether Jude is quoting from the book of Enoch, or uh, repeating Enoch's prophecy from an oral tradition, or the Lord inspired the inclusion of this prophecy, although it's not found in any other Scripture, which is not beyond the ability of God to, of course, Inspire his word in such a manner that Jude provide it. While we cannot be certain of why Jude has included this prophecy within this verse, I mean it, it fits in the in the teaching of Jude without question. It's not as though it's out of place by any stretch of the imagination. But but why Jude would include this when it's not found in any other scripture? Of course, we cannot be certain as to why. Um, but nonetheless, um, Jude has included this prophecy of Enoch within this verse. And we can be certain that the inclusion of the prophecy, as Judas stated, is true. Now, before we begin to examine that which Enoch actually prophesied, it's important that we address the fact that this prophecy is taken from a source other than Scripture. When I say other than Scripture, recorded Scripture, it's not in Scripture. That's just all there is to it. So it's not you're not going to go anywhere in Scripture and find this quote because it does not exist. In fact, there's very little said about Enoch in all of Scripture. It's very limited. Anything is even mention of his name is very limited in the totality of Scripture, not to mention that which he said. And so while we, before we begin to examine what was prophesied, I believe it's important that we address this fact that it was taken from a source other than Scripture, meaning recorded or written Scripture. While in most cases, the New Testament writers, as I mentioned, quote from Old Testament Scripture, there are also times in Scripture where other sources are quoted. And that's important to understand because, listen, and it, it no less makes it Scripture. Scripture is Scripture, and we totally embrace that truth. But let us understand that there are times, and I'm going to show you some of these just to help you to see this truth, that, that, that even Paul, for instance, he quotes pagan philosophers in this text of Scripture. And so every quote is not from an Old Testament text. Anytime we find as it is written, that is an Old Testament passage being quoted. And just because something is mentioned in Scripture, you have to remember two things here. First of all, we know that Scripture is inspired by God. The men aren't inspired by God. The Word is inspired. God breathed out the Scripture, so it's God. The word inspiration means God breathed, and so God breathed His Word, and we know that to be true. And God used men, as P- Peter tells us in his epistle. He used writers to, uh, as the Holy Spirit of God bore them, as the as the as the ship or the boat would be. Uh, carried about by the wind and, and directed by the wind. So the Holy Spirit directed these men and used them to write the scriptures. But you must remember these two things. That scripture is inspired, that's absolutely true. But you also must remember that be, just because something is stated in scripture, it does not mean that that statement itself is that which God had inspired, Though God Purposed it to be in his book. In other words, I'm saying this you'll find in scripture throughout the Old Testament, for instance, you will find men who speak lies. Don't you? Well, that lie doesn't just become truth all of a sudden because it's recorded in scripture, but yet the scriptures are true about the lie. And so the point I'm making is that even when Paul quotes pagan philosophers and such, there's a reason he does so, even in communicating with his audience, with those whom he is speaking or evangelizing such as like Mars Hill, and so you'll find that that he will, that the scriptures include at times the quotes of pagan men, or the lies of men, or the quotes from Enoch, which obviously was a man who had tremendous fellowship with God, but yet no scripture records that which he stated. And so it's interesting that we come across a passage like this, and then you ask the question, so you know how 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 do we understand this? Meaning that we can't go back to an Old Testament text. Well, really, that doesn't create a problem for us at all, and I hope you can see that clearly. That's what I'm hoping you'll understand in this. But also, we must be honest with the text and not just overlook it or bypass it and not deal with the fact that this is not a quote from Old Testament scripture because it's not. And so, it's important that you recognize that and you understand that. And so, as we consider this quote from uh, Enoch, which Jude makes we have to be reminded that even if Jude is quoting the book of 1 Enoch, which is a pseudepigraphical book, meaning it, it is not a part of the canon of Scripture, in other words, it would be considered such as the Apocrypha. And if you found... And you know the Apocrypha is not inspired writ. It's not the Word of God. It's not that which was included in the canon of Scripture. But yet... Even if this is a quote directly from 1 Enoch, and it really looks like it is, because if you go back and look at 1 Enoch, you'll find this quote is actually made. But even if that's the case, this prophecy could be in the inspired prophecy of the Lord all the same. In other words, if Jude did quote from an outside source, which obviously this did not come from Old Testament, so either the Lord just gave it to Jude and spoke it to Jude and Jude wrote it out and quoted something Enoch had said that he had no actual record of himself, but yet Enoch had stated it and it's recorded in the book of Enoch also. Or you'll find that he took it from the book of Enoch, obviously, knowing that that portion is and was true, that this is true, that Enoch prophesied this. And so it's truth all the same, and that's what I want you to understand and so, we have to understand that Jude, in including this, obviously, as inspired, as the inspired word of God, we know that Jude included this prophecy of Enoch, and he did so with confidence that the prophecy was of God, even if the book itself, being the book of Enoch, was not inspired. So, we understand that truth. Jude is in good company. As I mentioned a moment ago, because the Apostle Paul quoted men who were not writers of Scripture as well. In Acts 17, 28, it says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. When he says, for certain of your own poets, actually, this is Acts chapter 17 and verse 28, and this is the account of Mars Hill, Paul is there in Greece, standing at Mars Hill, and there's this altar to the unknown God, and he's addressing these Greeks concerning their pagan religion, and then he quotes one of their pagan philosophers, saying, even your poets have said, for for we are also his offspring. Now, this is believed to be a quote from one of the Greek poets named Aratus of Soli, and the quote is taken from a work he wrote titled phenomena and so it, it is an actual historical document from which paul is now quoting this this poet of theirs but this is recorded throughout history in titus 1 12, one of themselves even a prophet of their own said the cretians are always liars evil beasts slow bellies here again in the text of scripture you find paul quoting a poet and a pagan at that concerning something he is teaching. In his epistle to Titus, Paul quotes this pagan or secular poet or a philosopher who is believed to be a man by the name of Epimenides of Gnosis. And so this is another historical figure who is not a believer in Christ, who is not found in Scripture whatsoever, and yet Paul is quoting him in the text of Scripture. And there's a reason for that. So in Jude's account, in contrast to Paul's references, he is not simply referencing the claims of a pagan, but is quoting a prophecy from a biblically historical character who possessed a close fellowship with the Lord. In Genesis 5, 22 through 24, we read, And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were 360 and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. So twice in this text, in verse 22 and in verse 24, we are told Enoch walked with God twice now there's not a whole lot said about Enoch otherwise really there's not but in what is said about Enoch what's emphasized is he walked with God and so obviously Enoch is a man who loved the Lord who followed after God regardless of the reason for or source from which Jude quotes Enoch Enoch obviously prophesied the following this is the prophecy of Enoch behold verse 14 The Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now we know obviously this is absolutely accurate with other prophecy of Scripture, which is not Enoch's. And so we know that the Scriptures teach about the Lord coming in judgment and how he will judge the ungodly. And obviously it's very interesting While this quote was not taken from Scripture, it is now a part of Scripture by virtue of Jude quoting Enoch. So this is still a part of Scripture. It's just we cannot go back and trace Old Testament from which it was quoted because it was not quoted from the Old Testament. The emphasis, however, within this reminder of Jude's is one of the absolute judgment of God against such ungodliness. Now, how do we know that ungodliness is definitely an emphasis made by Uh, jude concerning the prophecy which enoch made notice that jude mentions ungodly four times in verse 15 he says all that are ungodly then he says they're ungodly deeds then he says they have ungodly committed and then he says ungodly sinners have spoken against him the lord So the judgment that is declared within this prophecy follows a line of progression. First, God's judgment is declared upon these men because they are ungodly. Second, God's judgment is declared upon these men um, for their ungodly deeds. Look, I'm going to give you a hint, okay? When I pause, it's ungodly. That's what I'm looking for, okay? Just to kind of cue you in. So if you answer ungodly, you won't be wrong, all right? So first, God's judgment is declared upon these men because they are ungodly. Second, God's judgment is declared upon these uh, men for their ungodly deeds. Third, God's judgment is declared upon the ungodly manner in which they committed these ungodly deeds. And then fourth, God's judgment is declared upon these men because they speak against the Lord as ungodly sinners. So, notice the progression here of what is being stated. It's also important to consider the absolute nature of this pronounced judgment of God, which Paul also referenced in his epistle to the Thessalonian believers. In 2 Thessalonians 1 6 through 9, Paul writes, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, take vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. This is an absolute or the absolute judgment of God, which utterly destroys the wicked. Simon Peter also provided a reminder concerning God's definitive judgment. 2 Peter 2, 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. 2 Peter 3, 7. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. This is definitive, absolute, complete perfect judgment in which all wickedness, all ungodliness, and all the ungodly will be absolutely eradicated from the world and cast into eternal damnation under the righteous, holy wrath and judgment of God. So the point again to be, we find all through Scripture, throughout Scripture, uh, threaded throughout, we find weave throughout and woven that, that the judgment of God, just as prophesied by Enoch, as recorded by Jude, consistently is recorded and taught that the Lord will return with his saints, judgment come upon the earth, and the wicked be utterly destroyed. And so that's exactly what is prophesied here in Jude as well, of which Jude refers. Now, it's interesting because, note, again, we look at Simon Peter's quote or his scripture, the uh, epistle, we look at Paul's epistles, and we tend to look at those and go, oh yeah, well that's not the very last day, the very final judgment of God, and ultimately it is. But notice Jude's quote of Enoch's prophecy is in direct relation with whom? I've told you this over and over again concerning, the well, it is the ungodly. You're right. Actually, that's a great answer because if you look at verse 4 again, for there are certain men in unawares, Who were before of old ordained to this condemnation? Ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So when Jude quotes Enoch here in verse 14 and 15, he is, and 16, he is actually quoting Enoch in relation to saying that that which Enoch prophesied is referring to the ungodly men in verse 4 remember this i think this is we earnestly contend for the faith um in doing so i think sometimes we really misunderstand as you look at ephesians chapter 6 as we've studied through ephesians I guess it's been a year or so ago or more. And as we study through Ephesians in chapter 6, if you recall, there's not a command to charge, there's not a command to to run out there in the middle of the battle. What are we told to do? Stand. Why are we told to stand? Because we are standing from, we are fighting from victory, not fighting for victory. And when it comes to contending for the faith, no, never forget this, and I believe this is a great reminder of this as we understand it being taught by Jude or reminded, we're being reminded of this by Jude, that we are contending for the faith. Why? Because there are these ungodly men who pervert the grace of God, deny the Lord Jesus Christ, deny the Lord God, and then he gives all these warnings, woes, illustrations, examples of how they, their, their lack of character or, or, their per, or, or how they present themselves, so on and so forth, and how they are marked. And then... He's letting us be reminded by the quote from Enoch that they will not get by with this. Listen, we don't contend for the faith in order to gain some victory. We contend for the faith because we know we are already standing in the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would we fight for something if we did not know that this is worth fighting for? And when we say worth fighting for, not in danger that we literally lose it, but in the reality that this is truth and that that though all other kingdoms will fall, all other claims will be be seen to be fallacy and error or lies, but yet this truth remains. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look, that's a great encouragement to me. While I desire to see the unregenerate man come to faith in Christ, I will tell you what, whether they come to faith or whether they, know, whether they don't, the reality is we can stand in the truth, in boldness, contending for the faith, standing in the faith, knowing that while all the world looks as though it is all going to collapse and it's all going to collapse on top of us and that people, people I think, have a fear, if you will, that somehow Christianity is going to fizzle away. Listen, the kingdom of Christ is the one kingdom that will never pass. Why would we not contend for something we know that is eternal? Why would we not stand boldly in that which we know is eternal? And so this is a reminder to us that all those ungodly, all those who are enemies of the cross, all those who deny the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those who pervert the grace of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ, every single one of them, without exception, apart from God's divine intervention in their lives, every single one of them, will stand before God, will be judged, and in the end, it is Christ who stands alone. And everyone else is kneeling before him. Why would we not fight in that? Why would we not want to be a part of that battle, of that war? Why would we not, understanding that we stand in victory? We're already victorious. You've heard it said like this before, and I don't want to just to. Just quote a quip, so to speak, but I guess I will. You know, we know the end of the story. We know how this ends. And we are victorious in Christ. It doesn't mean we're not going to suffer in this life. It doesn't mean that we won't be persecuted in this life. In fact, it means that we will. But regardless of all of that, the ungodly will be judged. They will. In the end, every knee will be bowing before Christ, who alone will be standing. Who alone is worthy to. And so this is a great reminder for us. This is complete judgment of God. This is, this is the, the perfect judgment of God. Let's look at verse 16. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and, and their mouths speaketh great swelling words, having immense persons in admiration because of advantage. I'm not going to belabor this, but I do want to just briefly go over this and, and point some things out here that are important. Jude refers to four specific details concerning these ungodly men. First of all, he says, murmurs. This is simply grumblers. Uh, Second, complainers. This is one who's complaining about their lot, Uh, living according to their lusts. They go about after their cravings and desires, unbridled, unhindered, uh, manipulative. They speak arrogantly in effort to impress others to personally benefit because of such. So there are multiple scriptures that refer to such an attitude or behavior by such wicked men, including those who remained in unbelief among the children of Israel within the Old Testament. Uh, let's read through this passage, and, and, and I'll try to conclude this as quickly as possible. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-11. through 11, quite, a, quite a text here to read. It's not that long. It'll take just a minute here. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and, all were all, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, neither be idolaters as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen unto them for ensamples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. What he's saying, of course, is that there were those within the nation of Israel who remained in this unbelief, obviously, and they were not truly Israel, though they were associated with Israel, and it manifested by their actions, by their lives, by their murmuring, by their complaining, by the tempting of God, if you will, by the, uh, by the uh, immoral lifestyle, fornication, idolatry, adultery, and all of these things. And so they were marked by these things. And so all these things are an example reminding us that, that we are not this and we are not to be this. But yet we're reminded as well, even among his own people, meaning among that nation. God judged them, slew them, wiped them out. So we're being reminded again that God will judge the wicked. There is no unrighteousness that will go without an answer. And in the end, here here again, this is the beauty of us understanding the victory in which we stand. Regardless of what things look like, regardless of all that, we stand in victory. This ultimately will end in Christ's kingdom being magnified, being made known among all men. And by the way, listen, not one individual soul, hear me, we must remember this. This is a, this is a wonderful truth, a glorious truth. Not one individual soul that's ever lived life will ignorantly enter into eternity Without knowing that Jesus is God. That he is the Messiah. That he is the Savior. That he is the Lord of all things. Think of that for a moment. No one's going to be in eternity wondering who Jesus is. No one. In fact, as I mentioned a while ago, every knee will bow. Not only will they know, they are forced to acknowledge and submit to the truth of who he is. there'll be no ignorance all these people that i just don't know well you will you will and we know god will judge the wicked we know that all unrighteousness will be answered for meaning god will hold man accountable and in the end this is the beauty god will make all things right and guess how long all things will be made right for don't say ungodly Eternity for eternity. Revelation 21, 4 and 5. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Look, I, I don't know how much more comfort you could have than that. God makes all things new and it's like that for all eternity because this is true because he is true and faithful. So the wicked will be punished. So we find that there's a great judgment that is executed upon the wicked that will be executed. And, And even Peter dealt with that again whenever he stated that God knows how to reserve the ungodly for judgment and He also knows how to deliver the godly out of trouble and temptation. Ultimately, this is our salvation complete. When we are delivered not only from the power of sin and the bondage of sin, which we have been delivered from that, but hear me, the redemption complete, salvation complete is the day that we obviously will be after the resurrection of the dead and we will be joined together within a in a glorified body as is our Lord's, and we will be delivered from the presence, from the thought of sin altogether. That is God making things right. That is God making things new. And it will forever, all eternity will be that way. I rejoice in that. I'm thankful for that. Because I tell you, we live in an ungodly world. It's always been ungodly since the fall of man in the garden. It's always gotten worse. Oh, it's never been this bad. Oh, it's been worse. Ask Noah. I would say Noah would have to testify that you think it's bad. Oh, no, it was really bad in my day. <laughs> and yes, it's terrible and wickedness seems, seems to prevail, but it doesn't. And it won't. In the end, God makes all these things. He sets it all right. And makes it right for all eternity. He will. He will he will make it right. That's right. And we are to trust and rest in that truth, contending for the faith. Look. We read that one verse, and that verse seems to be isolated so often. Verse 3 of, of Jude. Do you not understand? Jude is now, from verse 4 up to verse 16 to this point, has showed us why it's, so nece- why it's a necessity for us to contend for the faith. Because there's all this perversion, all this wickedness, all this ungodliness that continues to seem to abound all about us. But here's the thing. We don't contend because it's a losing battle. We contend because we're in victory. We're fighting from this victory of knowing the truth. And knowing what will be. And while men will continue to reject and be indifferent towards the gospel, while we should grieve over that, absolutely, we also take comfort in knowing that God will be glorified in all things, including the judgment of the wicked. God will still be glorified in that, because God will be glorified in the end regardless. But remember this, before the judgment of the wicked, there will be confession of the wicked that Jesus is who He says He is. And who God has made him to be, meaning among men, Messiah, Lord, overall, and judge. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the.